1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today we have two big questions. Is Trump crazy? And would Pence be worse? Later in this hour, Amy Willens will talk about Trump's mental and emotional status as analyzed by 27 psychiatrists and mental health professionals in the new book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. It's number four on the New York Times bestseller list this week. Also later in this hour, Raj Patel talks about how we get to a more equitable and sustainable food system. He wrote about that for the nation's special issue on the future of food. And we'll also talk with him about his new book, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. But first, would Pence be worse? Donald Trump is narcissistic, ignorant, impulsive, and aggressive. Maybe he'll be forced out of office before the end of his term, but would that be a good thing? Would Pence be worse? Jane Mayer has been working on that question. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker, author of several award-winning and best-selling books. Her latest, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by The New York Times. It's out now in paperback and back on the bestseller list in Los Angeles. The last time she was here, we talked about the secret power behind the Trump presidency, the reclusive and very right-wing hedge fund billionaire Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca. Jane Mayer, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be with you. Well, my first question is, do you think that Mike Pence wants to be president? Oh, I, I think there's
2: um, there's no doubt in fact, I interviewed so many people for this story. I think something like 60-some 60, 60 people, and including um, the editor of the newspaper in his hometown, uh, who said to me, Mike Pence popped out of his mother's womb wanting to be president. Uh, he, he's, by the time he was in high school, he was telling his um, classmates that he wanted to be president of the United States. This is, uh, this is one of the revelations to me that I, I just didn't expect. I knew he was you know, very much a social conservative and a, a, a member of the
1: Christian right, but he's also hugely ambitious. But yet he's never been really successful as a candidate or as an elected official. He he lost his first elections. He barely won the governor's race, got only 49% of the vote. And you say uh, his tenure as governor nearly destroyed his political career. I remember that when Trump picked him, it looked like he might lose his reelection campaign for governor. So... How do you explain his relatively weak performance as a candidate and as governor?
2: Part of the problem is his views really are so extreme that he has, as as one of the Republicans that I quote in the story, a guy named Bill Osterly said, he scared a lot of people, even in Indiana. That which is partly why he only got 49 percent of the vote when he ran for governor. I mean, to, to to balance that out, though, he did he did serve a number of terms in Congress, of course, and kept getting reelected, and he meanwhile was rising in the leadership of the Republican Party in Congress. So. So he has some skills, and I wouldn't underestimate those, in particular... He has a, a great gift for making extreme positions seem less threatening. It's kind of the same gift that, that Ronald Reagan had, and to some extent, Dick Cheney had. The, the, he knows how to explain things in a way that makes him seem affable and likable, and you, you don't really grasp the, the sort of the threat that's um, in, in some of the policy positions he's taking.
1: Well, among the sixty people you interviewed for your story in the New Yorker to understand Mike Pence, you talked to his mother. What is she like?
2: <laughs> his mom's name is Nancy um, uh, Pence Fritsch. She's gotten re- remarried. Um, she uh, after her uh, Mr. Pence died. Um, she was actually quite delightful. And I would say to the extent that Mike Pence has any charm, it probably comes from his mom. She's a um, staunch Irish Catholic lady who was originally from Chicago, um, very proud of her roots, and um, moved to Indiana because of her husband's job. And uh, she had a sense of humor. She was pretty, you know, very proud of her, all of her sons. She's got six kids. It was her other son, though, her first son, um, Gregory, who um, actually was uh, taking a lot of sort of ribbing her and and ribbing his brother and and kind of taking a few sort of sibling-like shots at Mike Pence while I was interviewing him, too.
1: In your New Yorker piece, you quote Mike Pence's mother telling you, I was a Stepford wife. What is she talking about? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I was asking her um, over coffee in uh, Columbus, Indiana, where they're all from, wh- You know, how did she become a Republican? Because she'd originally been a, a, a big Democrat, a fan of the Daily Machine in, in Chicago and, and of the Kennedys. And she said, well, my husband became Republican, and I guess I just sort of followed what he wanted. And she said, I was a Stafford wife. <laughs> um, and <laughs> she, she actually went back to college when she was 65 and got a degree in psychology. And that she sort of said that's when she started thinking for herself. And her her son Gregory, who is um, Mike Pence's brother, said, "Yeah, she was like the sca- scarecrow. She, you know, that's when she got her brain." <laughs> and then the mom looked at me and she said, "You see what I have to put up with?" So I mean, they were they were you know they were kind of lively, nice people, funny, uh, affable, and um, self-deprecating and warm. It's the father in the family though who I think casted sort of a big shadow. And um, he was actually German, not Irish, and a staunch disciplinarian. And he um, had a rule in the household, which was that the Pence children, there were six of them, were not allowed to speak at the dinner table. They had to sit there in silence while their parents spoke. (laughs)
1: Wait a wait um, a minute, the children were not allowed to speak at the dinner table? They were not. They were
2: forbidden from speaking except to say a few things like, pass the butter, please, oh. and then thank you. Anyway, he was. Uh, Greg Pence said to me that their father was very black and white. Um, he, he enforced discipline with a belt, and you always knew where you stood with him, the brother said. And he said, then he said to me, and, and my brother, meaning Mike Pence, is a lot like him.
1: Well,. One of the things we know about Mike Pence is that he's an intensely religious, evangelical Protestant. His mother told you, quote, religion is the most important thing in our lives. What else did she say?
2: But she said you know we don't we're, we don't take it that seriously and we don't proselytize but you see the thing is M- Mike Pence broke with the family's religion um, that all the kids the, all the boys in the family their four sons and two daughters and the, all four sons were altar boys and they were very very involved in you know parochial school and all of that but 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 when Mike Pence went off to college to Hanover College in, in Indiana he changed his religion he, con- he he became born again and converted to evangelism. Christianity, and, and it interested me because he's someone who has if you look at his pattern very much kind of flowed, been caught up in, in the larger political currents and the current at that point was moral, the moral majority was proselytizing across the country and trying to convert, among others, Catholics to become evangelical Christians, Protestants and, and he, he got caught up in that and he changed the religion, which is you know, quite a surprise in his family and and they're dealing with it, but it, it it's a it's an important rupture.
1: You said his family were Democrats. I was amazed to learn from your article in the New Yorker that Mike Pence voted for Jimmy Carter in 1980, not for Ronald Reagan. What's the story there?
2: Well, again, don't forget Jimmy Carter was a born again Christian, so he, uh, there were a lot of evangelicals who who voted for him. Um, including ones that would become increasingly conservative afterwards and become more Republican, and that's what happened with Mike Pence. He he fell in love with Reagan after <laughs> after voting for Jimmy Carter, um, and Reagan became kind of his his role model. So again, in fact, I I didn't put in the story, but I have read that Mike Pence likes to listen to, on, you know, to, to tapes of Reagan's speeches and and jokes. I've heard him tell some of Reagan's jokes. I think he's he's again tried to. Catch capture that sort of affable conservative style that, that, that won't be as off-putting to people. But um, beneath that style is about as hardcore a right-wing social conservative as you can find in this
1: country. And what's the deal with his refusing to eat dinner alone with another woman? Does he really think other women will lure him into adultery?
2: Well, you know, there is it's it's this code in the um evangelical right um and the idea is that you you need to keep yourself out of temptation. So, he will not eat dinner with a woman other than his wife alone and he also will not go to a cocktail party or any place where they're serving alcohol in mixed company when she is not present. I mean, in some ways, I felt that his wife, Karen Pence, who he calls Mother, she acts almost like a chaperone in his life. And you kind of have to wonder, you know, why is it he feels he needs such
1: chaperoning? Yeah. Well, you need to keep yourself out of temptation, he, he believes, and yet, he supported Donald Trump after the Excess Hollywood tape came out, where uh, let us say Trump uh, does not try to keep himself out of temptation.
2: Well, this is where you see the other side of Pence. So people think of him as an uncompromising Christian conservative, but in fact, he has he's cut his his necessary deals when he needs to in order to get ahead and and getting on the on the uh, ticket with with Trump was certainly uh, the largest example that he was willing to sort of strike a, a, a Faustian bargain when he needed to. And it rescued him. I mean, it must be said, uh, many people I interviewed thought that Mike Pence would never have gotten reelected as governor of Indiana. He was incredibly unpopular. There were st- signs popping up all over the state saying, fire Mike Pence. And, and so it was really actually a, you know, a rescue operation when Trump put him on the ticket, because there are very strong odds for vice presidents becoming president. It put him in, in line to be potentially a president of the United States in a way he never would have had the chance
1: otherwise. One of your sources, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, you quote, saying, if Pence were to become president, the government would be run by the Koch brothers. Uh, you, of course, uh, have written the book on the Koch brothers, and you report that in 2012, one of the Koch brothers, Charles Koch, wanted Pence to run for president. How did Mike Pence, the, the far-right Christian evangelical conservative, become a favorite of the Kochs?
2: Well, it's a curious story because, and one that I actually didn't know till I got uh, deeply into the reporting on Pence. But as you, you know, your question sort of suggests that the, the Kochs are not religious. They don't care about um, sort of social conservatism. They call themselves libertarians, so they they certainly are not aligned with Pence on these moral issues having to do with his hatred of abortion and and you know th- those kinds of issues. So what do they have in common? Well, it turns out in 2009, Mike Pence started doing some major economic favors for the Kochs. They were tremendously powerful, but they were really worried that um, some legislation was going to pass through Congress that was going to end up taxing carbon pollution. They're a huge fossil fuel company, and it would have hurt their bottom line tremendously. And Mike Pence took up their cause, and he... He campaigned and pushed and wheedled, and he, he took a, a a petition that the that the Koch organization had created, and got tons of his colleagues in the House to sign on to it, saying that they would pass no legislation to stop global warming that would require spending a, a cent of government money. And and what happened as a result of his activism and that of a few other people in the in the uh, leadership on the Republican side in the House was that they they. He succeeded in killing the legislation, which would have resulted in a tax on carbon pollution, helping Coke industries hugely, and and from there on out, aligning the Republican Party against doing anything about climate change, unlike almost any other political organization in the world. Um, and so it was a, a hugely valuable thing that he did for Coke industries, and Coke industries has rewarded him ever since, and he became you know one of their favorite politicians if not their favorite politician. So that's the, that's the origin story of of how they became so close and then they began to try the Kochs were hoping to push him to run for president.
1: So, I need to return to our opening question. Would Pence be worse than Trump right now? What what answers did people give you to that question?
2: So I, I asked tons of people, and, and, and you know, one of the things that was interesting to me was among the people who <laughs> who were most negative about Pence were people. In Indiana, including a number of Republicans, even moderate Republicans, were were found Pence just so far right that they they thought, and and, and also kind of incompetent, that they they were just warning me against him. And there's one um, Republican state legislator, I quote, named Ed Clare from Indiana, who said to me, I would take Trump any a day of the week and twice on Sundays over Pence, which is kind of shocking. And yeah. and, and, a num, you know, and a number of the others did, too. And then <laughs> there's some Democrats who, for different reasons, kind of said the same thing. I quote Harold Ickes in the story, um, who's a big Democratic operative and has been for a number of years. And, and, and Ickes said to me, Democrats should pray that Trump stays in office, because he feared that if Pence came in, it would be a much harder boil for the Democrats to run against. Pence, Pence is likely to be, would be able to work with Congress if he were president because he's been in Congress, maybe even get something done, might be a little bit more competent than, than Trump. You know, and, and certainly in this social conservative legislation sphere, he poses a, a different and bigger threat. But it all comes down to, I think, how great a threat you think Trump might be in terms of starting a nuclear war. And that is everybody's caveat. You know, if 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 you think Trump might start a nuclear war, what could be worse? Pretty much nothing. But beyond that, I, I can't say that I heard a lot of votes for Pence.
1: Jane Mayer, she interviewed 60 people for her piece for The New Yorker. It's called The Danger of President Pence. It's required reading for everybody interested in politics. Jane, thanks so much for this piece, and thanks for talking with us today. Well,
2: thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it.
1: Our next topic today is a big one. Is Trump crazy? Republican Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, got the punditocracy going a couple of weeks ago by tweeting after some statements of Trump's. Corker compared the White House to an adult daycare center and noted, quote, someone obviously missed their shift this morning. Since then, we've seen news reports of people close to the president who say in private he is, quote, unstable, losing a step, and unraveling. Trump reportedly said recently, quote, I hate everyone in the White House. Now we have a new book where many psychiatrists express their professional judgments about the dangerous case of Donald Trump. That's the book's title. It's number four on the New York Times bestseller list this week. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's best known for her award-winning books on Haiti. Amy, welcome back, thank you, John. Before we take up the question, is Trump crazy, let's start with a little about the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess the President. What exactly is this book?
3: It's a collection of essays by well-known psychiatrists and mental health specialists looking at Trump's behavior during the campaign, before the campaign and now since he's been president and trying to assess his mental health obviously he's not their patient so they haven't been in long therapy sessions with him they do know a little bit some of them about his background his family etc and they try to assess his uh mental state
1: well this is relevant they tell us because of The 25th Amendment, which nobody really knew anything about until uh, January 20th, 2017. The 25th Amendment is the other way a president can be removed from office. There's impeachment, a vote by Congress... But there's also, the 25th Amendment says, if the majority of the cabinet determines that the president is, quote, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, he can be removed. So we do want to know whether he is subject to the 25th Amendment. Uh, and the, the view of uh, of the psychiatrists is that they are... Professionals. It's their job to recognize craziness. They've trained for years to do it. They do it all day long. They get paid good money to do it. So uh, they have a professional responsibility to tell us about this.
3: Yes, they do have a professional responsibility to tell us about this. And uh, they argue that the 25th Amendment is applicable to mental illness as well as to, you know, complete a deterioration of the brain or incapacity to move or hear. Their argument is strong that we should know what they think of Trump's mental health. Uh, Whether their argument is strong that they should be the determinators, the determiners of uh, whether a president should serve in office is another one. I mean, there are various sections of this book. One is what's wrong with Trump. Then the middle section is should psychiatrists be even talking about this when he's not their patient? Is that a violation? Or do they have a duty to warn the public? And then the last section is what's wrong with us that we elected this man president?
1: These are all very good questions. They're great
3: questions. The book is truly fascinating. But the second section is the part that disturbs me most because We've seen what happens when psychiatry is in the service of the state during the Gulag and the Soviet Union um, and in other places, many other places. Uh, One of the psychiatrists argues that, of course, he would never participate in a state-mandated psychiatric evaluation, but against the state, he would. But who's to say when that's going to happen or what that means? Trump could be out of office and, Mm -hmm. you know, it just doesn't really... It's it's very concerning, and can they really diagnose him? I will say for myself that although I found all the uh, initial essays about his diagnosis very interesting, they're not that far from what we already thought already, from what the L.A. Times wrote when they said he was unfit for office uh, five months after he took office. You know, hedonistic, lost in the present moment, incurious, and narcissistic. I mean... Uh, one of the essays says he is the most dangerous man in the world today. I think mm-hmm. that's true, mm-hmm. um, more than Rocket Man even. <laughs> <laughs> Kim well, Jong Un.
1: Let's hold off <laughs> on Rocket Man here, and uh, we have to we have to talk about the Goldwater Rule here, which is yes. an important part of this book. Um, until Trump came along, the psychiatry profession had a firm rule that it is unethical for psychiatrists to diagnose people who they have not personally examined and this was because in 1964 When Goldwater was the Republican candidate running against LBJ, a bunch of psychiatrists went to the public and said, Goldwater is crazy, he's dangerous, he threatens to destroy the world. And the American Psychiatric Association voted and ruled and made it part of the canon of ethics of the profession that this is improper, unethical, and psychiatrists aren't allowed to do it. And the American Psychiatric Association reaffirmed the Goldwater rule with specific reference to Trump in March 2017, two three months after he took office. So, uh, what what? So they're
3: our- going against this new reaffirmation of the rule, and you know you can see why they did it because. Would that we had Goldwater now. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So he was crazy to some psychiatrists back then who had never examined him, but if he were the president now, he would seem a lot more uh, sane than Trump. So, I mean, I, I understand why the Psychiatric Association did reaffirm that. However, I think that this book is truly valuable, so I would hate to see them abide by it, and they assert that they are going beyond that rule because they have a duty to warn the public.
1: It's called duty to warn. And the duty to warn is part of the ethical rules of the psychiatric profession. Right, and the duty
3: to warn is if you have a patient who is an imminent threat to others or himself or herself, should she be a female then you have the right to infringe on the patient-doctor confidentiality rule. And? And so they are arguing that Donald Trump poses an imminent threat to humanity. So not just one person, but all of us here. And thus they have a a duty to warn, as one of them wrote, no, this is Nanette Gartrell and Dee Musbacher in an essay called He's Got the Whole World in His Hands and His Finger on the Trigger. They wrote, The nuclear arsenal rests in the hands of a president who shows symptoms of serious mental instability. This is an urgent matter of national security. The world as we know it could cease to exist with a 3 a.m. nuclear tweet.
1: The duty to warn clause of the ethical code of psychiatry says specifically psychiatrists are required, required to, quote, report, to incapacitate... And to take steps to protect. So they're supposed to incapacitate their patient who's threatening to, whatever, kill his wife, kill himself.
3: The image is fabulous of, like, uh, twenty the 27 authors in this book (laughs) rushing the White House to incapacitate the president. (laughs) And
1: and take steps to protect. So that's what they are invoking in this book. Right. So what
3: they're saying is that the Goldwater rule and the duty-to-warn rule are in opposition to each other, right now.
1: And that the duty to warn takes precedence because the danger is so great. Now I want to go back to to what you said there's a section on the the first section about diagnosis. You said, well, we pretty much know what they know. Do they know anything we don't know about Trump's narcissism, his aggression?
3: They they have ways of talking about it. And this is what I think is important for readers. And one reason is that although they say things that we know or have felt, their analysis is more interesting and more profound because of their professional knowledge and experience. So there's there's also a really wonderful essay by Harper West called In Relationship with an Abusive President. Uh-huh. And it's about uh, domestic abuse and how the president's relationship with the population at least a segment of it that didn't vote for him is like uh, his relationship with uh, husband's, say, uh, relationship with an abused wife.
1: Well, this takes us to part three, which is why does the wife stay with the abusive husband? And, and of course, what you could say is, well, there's nothing in this book, really, they don't have any, any new ev- evidence about Trump that wasn't available during the election. And he got elected. So what we really should ask is, what's wrong with the Trump voters? Are they crazy? Rather than what's wrong with him? And indeed, this is something that's occurred to the editors and the authors. And what do they have to say about this?
3: Well, again, a lot of it is not so surprising to those of us who have been following uh, commentary on Trump and, and who've been thinking about Trump. And one of the essays the writer writes about uh seeing a woman interviewed at a Trump rally and she says I want to take my country back mm-hmm. and uh he says that's exactly the situation with the Trump voter as they feel they've been removed from the American conversation, that they no longer have a piece of the American pie, that that their income since the 1960s has not changed, the blue-collar worker doesn't have a job, all the things we've been thinking about, about the inequalities in America and the loss of the manufacturing class. So it's not that surprising.
1: Well, it strikes me that what is dangerous about Trump isn't so much that he's narcissistic, that he lies. That yeah, there he's...
3: have been other presidents. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: if you know, if you run through our recent presidents, we find many things that are diagnosable. Some were subject to depression. Some were accused of being delusional. Alcoholics. Alcoholics. Compulsive womanizers. The big issue with Trump, it seems to me, that they point to is this combination of a lack of impulse control with this extreme aggression. And if this were a husband who is beating up his wife or kids, you know, that would be an issue for them. But it's the finger on the trigger thing.
3: And it's the idea, too. The nuclear
1: trigger. The nuclear trigger.
3: It's the idea, too, that when such a character feels rejection, that's when they become violent. So if he feels somehow he's not managing things or he's not in control, that's when he's most likely to make the impulsive decision to do something really wrong and it is indeed it's the finger on the trigger but uh one of the interesting things that they write about and then i hate to say they it's one writer or another and i'm just remembering someone says trump in that famous hot mic story where he talks about having a woman by her that in fact trump has all of us by the Thank you. P-word.
1: Thank you. I don't
3: know if it's sayable on the air. Let's leave it at that. We're leaving it at that, and that that is a problem. We are abused by this person, and we haven't found a way to get away from him. And indeed, when you think of the 25th Amendment telling you that the cabinet has to decide if he's unfit or unable... Imagine that cabinet. We watched the cabinet sit there while Trump said, how do you like being in my cabinet? And they all went, oh, it's so great, Mr. President. You know, he made them publicly suck up to him. So are they going to really appointed by him? Are they going to be the ones to tell us he's mentally unfit?
1: The book is The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president... We've been speaking with Amy Willance. She's our expert on the 25th Amendment and the, the duty to warn. Amy, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about food and the nation's new food issue, The Future of Food, Setting the Table for the Next Generation. For that, we turn to one of the key contributors to that issue, Raj Patel. He's an award-winning writer and activist, and he's also a research professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin, and a senior research associate in humanities at Rhodes University in South Africa. His new book has just been published, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. Raj Patel, welcome to the program.
4: Well, thanks very much, John, for having me.
1: Before we talk about the nation food issue, let's talk about your new book. You open it by saying that our long era of climactic good fortune has come to an end. Please explain.
0: Well,
4: the the past few hundred years uh, in particular have been uh, an era of relative uh, climatic stability. And marry that with uh, an economic system that was is is premised on relying on this uh, fairly stable weather and you've got the the story of modern capitalism but th- that fluke is over um we've done uh, a, a great deal of damage to our natural world and the, the consequence of this uh, is that we're moving uh, away from uh, this era of stability into something far, far more different. And now, a lot of people call this uh, you know, the, the, the time that we're moving into the Anthropocene. You know, the, the, the time where you'll be able to tell that humans were on Earth because of radioactivity or because of uh, plastic in the sea. You know, by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the sea than fish. Oh. Uh, and the, you know, the, these markers uh, are, are not so much markers of humans. As markers of capitalism, I mean, there's nothing about being human that, that causes us to, to, to engage in atmospheric nuclear testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very much a, a, a product of modern capitalism, and so that's why we, uh, Jason Moore and I, my co-author, uh, argued that it should be called the capitalocene.
1: Well, the seven cheap things in the title of your book, which you say made the modern capitalist world, are nature, money, work, care, food energy in lives I think we should start with cheap is cheap a good thing uh, not really. I mean, cheap is the strategy that capitalism has uh,
4: to be able to externalize and, um, and abuse and exploit. Uh, and so with each of those seven things, you, you can, I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around all seven at the same time. But the idea, the, the example that, that uh, Jason and I kind of pick on is another sign of the Anthropocene, which, or the Capitalocene, which is chicken. Uh, the, the fact that we're able to have so much cheap, chicken is because of these seven cheap things and it's not a bargain it's dependent on exploiting nature and you know we've rendered Fifty percent of chicken species extinct uh, while breeding uh, regular chicken species uh, you know, to, to levels where their breasts are so big they can't walk. Uh, when you think about nature, we think about the fact that these, nugget, you know, these chickens don't turn themselves into nuggets by themselves. They require the exploitation <laughs> of workers. When those workers' bodies are broken, it requires cheap care, but uh, care is increasingly becoming unaffordable around the world. Nonetheless, these workers and the birds require cheap food, and that means, uh, you know, that's why the the chicken McNugget features in a sort of cycle of of low-quality, low-nutrition food to help keep workers fed through the end of the day. You need cheap energy to be able to make all this, uh, you know, transportable and affordable and you need cheap money to be able to afford all this. You know, the 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 fact that you need small business administration loans to make Kentucky Fried Chicken Outlets affordable uh, for, for the franchisees is another sign that, um, you know, that, that there are costs that are externalized. And nonetheless, we need cheap lives. We, we, there, there are around the world today 40 million people in conditions of modern day slavery. But what we're arguing is that all of these things are running out, um, and that's why we argue that that we're moving, you know, this chicken nugget is sort of the chicken nugget at the end of the world. Uh, We're we're tilting to a a world without capitalism.
1: Uh, I want to stick with the chicken example for a minute. Isn't uh, cheap chicken a good thing? Um, For my grandparents, eating chicken was a rare treat that you would do, you know, on Sunday for a a feast. Uh, Today... You know, we can have chicken every day and, you know, people shouldn't be hungry. People shouldn't have to struggle to get enough to eat. Uh, You don't seem to think that cheap chicken is a good thing.
4: Well, I I fully agree, John, that people shouldn't be hungry. And the trouble is that if you look at um, the people in the United States who are uh, among the hungriest, these are workers in the food industry. The food industry depends on, on low wages. Uh, and so, if we care about people not going hungry, we need to raise workers' wages. But the only reason that chicken is cheap is because workers are exploited. So you have to choose one or the other. And I choose workers. I choose everyone being able to eat well. Um, and I, I, I don't choose, you know, disposably cheap chicken.
1: And chickens don't contribute much to global warming, do they? Especially compared to to, to beef cattle. No, no, you,
4: you, you're right that, that compared to other things,
1: you know, the the, the, the main sort of carbon
4: footprint of uh, chicken is usually in the propane that's required to, to heat up these huge chicken coops. Um, but it's not negligible. And, of course, in order for the uh, the production line to work and for these uh, birds to be transported to where it is that they're needed, you do need a fossil fuel economy. And the trouble with that is that uh, we're seeing the capital expenditure per ba- barrel of oil going up, in fact, to 45% of all American uh, oil exploration last year was only possible because it was given it was underwritten by federal subsidy so you know we do need oil to be able to make th- this food system work and even though chicken is comparatively less dependent on it than cattle uh, that's not saying you know, it's it's still uh, dependent on on a fossil fuel economy
1: so you call your book a history of the world in seven cheap things maybe we should examine more closely the the word things i maybe we need to know more about what things what things are well, that's a
4: subtle question, John, and I appreciate it deeply. Because, well, because uh, you know, we we often think of nature as a thing, uh, as something outside us that we can carve up and buy and sell, and occasionally visit when we when we go to a state park. Um, but that's a, a sign of what capitalism does to our understanding of how we fit into the web of life. Many human civilizations don't think of nature as a thing, but uh, understand our relationship in a web of life making very differently. So, for example, the Haida or Coastal Salish communities uh, have a salmon festival in which humans and salmon celebrate a treaty together. Uh, and so th- th- this is a different way of thinking about food, not as a thing that you can take, but as a people with whom you treat as a sovereign state that- that- that's in some way equal to you. Uh, and th- one of capitalism's sort of tricks is to make us feel like gods, that, w- that we are in charge of nature and that nature is a thing that we can cast our eye over and hopefully see money. Uh, But that's not the way that many civilizations have approached nature at all.
1: So capitalism makes things cheap. Of course, that's its main virtue. According to its defenders, everybody in the world can have a cell phone. Everybody in the world can watch TV uh, who wants to. Uh, A few people have figured out how to make a lot of money by producing cheap things, but isn't that for the greater good? Isn't it inevitable that a few people will figure out how to do this? Isn't that human nature? This is what the capitalists tell us.
4: The the trouble is that you, it's hard to square that kind of well. You know, in the end, everyone's better off under capitalism. When we're uh, for the first time in decades seeing an increase in the rate and prevalence of food insecurity. When we live in a time when there are 40 million, as I say, 40 million people in ca- conditions of modern day slavery. And when we, you know, when we have this sort of vast and yawning inequality, and the fact that we are in the middle of the sixth extinction, that we are destroying the very basis on which our Uh, you know, our our, uh, survival as a species depends. Uh, And so to say, well, yeah, no, ignore all that. Um, Still, people are better off is, is, uh, I think, uh, in a very deep way to miss the forest for the trees.
1: Now let's talk about the nation food issue for a minute. It's called the future of food. And the question that you take up there is a big one. How do we get to a more equitable and sustainable food system? In your piece, you say that in order to get there, we need to recognize where inequity and unsustainability come from. Let's talk about that for a minute.
4: Well, actually, John, it, it, it sort of follows from, um, from the conversation we were just having. I yeah. mean, if the food system is really based on colonialism and exploitation, then we should be able to see that in some place. And a good place to see it is on a banana. You may see a banana that says fair trade or shade grown or organic and that banana will likely have come from the Caribbean if, if, if you're living here in the United States, uh, you know, the, the largest majority, you know, slice of our, our banana intake comes from, from, uh, from Guatemala. And yet, Guatemala is the very country that a US corporation, the United Fruit Company, called its buddies in the CIA to be able to arrange a coup in order to prevent Peasants there from, from having uh, some sort of redistribution of land uh, and a, just a, a democratic land reform. I, I often, um, in my food activist role, sort of get asked by people, well, you know, if you don't buy fair trade, if you don't buy bananas, what will happen to these poor countries? What will they, what will they depend on? How will they export? How will they ever pay down their debt? And what I'm suggesting is that actually we owe them. We owe uh, these countries from here, us in the United States, we owe a, a huge debt to the Global South for the, you know, the way that our you know, that basically we've turned the Caribbean into our fruit basket. And now we expect it to remain that way in perpetuity so we can have cheap bananas. And fair trade may allow some farmers to hang on with their, by their fingernails a little longer in the banana market. But to be fair, these farmers never asked to be banana farmers. Uh, that was imposed on them by us. And we have to reckon with that, with that legacy.
1: Last question. What then are the, the priorities for movements of social justice from your perspective?
4: It depends where you are. And that's a great, uh, that's a great question to end on, John, because, you know, if this feels overwhelming, I mean, it's, it's meant to be big, right? These are systemic changes that we're yeah. talking about. But there are deep connections between the different frontiers of capitalist exploitation and resistance. Uh, So whether it's in the labor movement or in the climate justice movement or the environmental justice movement or the food justice movement, there are ways that people in these movements are finding one another and building strong uh, and robust alliances. And so for, for people listening now who want to do that, find the food or environmental or climate justice movement or racial, uh, racial justice movement or gender justice movement that most appeals to you and make sure that their vision understands how capitalism matters. And soon those dots get to be connected through, through your activism and through social movement. And that's how it is that we make a change.
1: Raj Patel connects the dots. He wrote about a more equitable and sustainable food system for the nation's special issue on the future of food. His new book is A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. Raj, thanks so much for talking with us today.
4: John, it's a deep pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about sports and politics with activist athletes from three different generations. And he has some choice words about what the NFL players truly won after their meeting this week with NFL owners. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash sports Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.